0: Welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have several fun topics to talk about. And one not so fun topic to talk about because we are, of course, going to start by talking about Mm COVID-19. But after that, we're going to dip into some communication theory to describe the contradictory strategies by Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And then we're going to end today by speculating about what the electoral map will look like during the 2020 election.
1: Yeah, so this is going to be a bit of a wonky episode. (laughs) Not wonky as in weird, wonky as in like nerdy, because it's going to be one segment nerding out about communication theory and another segment nerding out about the electoral map. So strap in and uh, we'll dive right into some abstract concepts. (laughs)
0: Let's get started with the numbers. So what are the current numbers, Michael?
1: So at this point we have worldwide uh, about 16.6 million cases that have occurred in total. Um, That's about 1.8 million new cases or a 12% increase over last week. Um, We've got 655,000 deaths worldwide, which is 44,000, which is 44,000 more than last week or a 7% increase. And at this point, 10.2 million people worldwide have recovered, or about 61%, which is up from uh, 59% last week. So now at this point, 61% of all COVID cases have recovered, which is, you know, that number going up is is the whole goal. That's what we want to move towards. Yeah. In the U.S., we've had a total of 4.4 million cases, which is up... 450,000 over last week, or an 11% increase. So actually, a slightly slower increase than the world overall. Um, With 150,000 deaths, or about 6,000 more than last week, which is a 4% increase week over week. So again, deaths have increased at an even, at a slower rate than cases have increased and slower than worldwide deaths. Um, And then at this point, we've got 2.1 million recovered, which is 48% of cases that have recovered at this point which is up from last week's 46 percent so for the second week in a row actually the u.s has actually moved in a better direction um at least following some some really high case numbers at the end of june and beginning of july um now we're still behind the rest of the world but those margins are starting to shrink so um kind of an encouraging sign
0: yeah no absolutely uh one thing that i do want to address though and this is an argument that i have addressed actually two arguments that i have addressed in the past but i keep seeing people make this hmm. damn argument so i'm going to talk about it again Number one,
1: they're not listening to the spectrum.
0: <laughs> yeah um well you should well if you're listening then you should share it with people that are saying Mm. these arguments help spread the good word exactly exactly uh show them the error of their ways um (laughs) so number one there does seem to be an underlying assumption that the current rate the current number of cases is somehow fixed so you have people who say oh well only this amount of people have died only this percentage of people in the entire population have gotten it um and only this percentage of people from the entire population have died. And when you are looking at the numbers in terms of what percentage of the entire population of the United States has died thus far, then yeah, it doesn't seem that significant. But there's two important points to make there. Number one, it increases, it is a pandemic, it is a virus, it is spreading, which means that those numbers are not fixed. They can continue to go up. Number two, the number two important argument to make about this is the fact that the point of creating restrictions is to keep those numbers from going up in the first place. So, again, if you're going to a burning building and you get a ton of water and you start putting out the fire... And the fire's starting to die down, and you think, oh, it's starting to die down. Well, I guess I don't need the rest of this water. And then you just pour it all out and throw it all away. That is dumb. Like, that is (laughs) a logically fallacious uh, approach. That's a logically fallacious way of thinking about it. That is kind of what's happening at this point. People are assuming that because either it hasn't become a raging inferno or because it does seem to be starting to die down, that there was no danger to begin with. But part of the dangers have been alleviated by those precautions, and part of those dangers still exist in the future if we don't take those precautions.
1: Yeah, and this this is a point that seems to be like finally getting through to some parts of our society that have resisted this throughout the pandemic, specifically finally making its way into some um like republican and trump administration um you know plans and rhetoric which and even is, trump himself and even trump himself yeah which is which is heartening definitely yeah. because you know there's a reason why the phrase is better late than never than you know and it's not you know just shame on you for being late <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, don't, punish,
0: don't punish the dog that comes home you know yeah yeah exactly um, there is a tweet that uh, Donald Trump sent out on the 20th, uh, June 20th. Uh, and I just want to read this tweet because it's it's a tweet that I'm going to praise. But like there's so much to it that is just laughable, but I'm still going to praise it. So he said, quote, we are united in our effort to defeat the invisible China virus And many people say that it is patriotic to wear a face mask when you can't socially distance. There's nobody more patriotic than me, your favorite president. (laughs) (laughs) So many parts of that are so wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Like, first off, let's be clear. The fact that he's referring to it as the China virus, that is nothing more than an attempt to deflect from the fact that up to this point... um. The Trump administration has had an absolutely abysmal response to the coronavirus outbreak. Um, For a while, they just decided, okay, let's just try to ignore it and maybe it'll go away. And then obviously it didn't go away. And they saw their poll numbers and they realized, oh, we actually have to do something about this. So that's really the only reason why they're talking about it. Um, Number two, I mean, obviously it's just it's always silly when he. Makes his hyperbolic statements of "There's nobody more patriotic than me." Yeah, your favorite yeah. president. It's like, have you seen your approval rating? I mean, <laughs> also, you are constantly trying to like develop conflicts of interest
1: with hostile nations, like set, yeah. selling, you know, setting up hotels in Moscow and whatever.
0: <laughs> it's yeah. like now, all of that being said, I think that overall his approach in trying to persuade people to wear a mask is absolutely right. Yes. I think that, um, this is probably one of the first times I've ever seen him use the word patriotic in a way that was actually productive yeah. and not like nationalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, cause again, patriotism is about loving your country and loving the people in your country. And if you love the people in your country, then you would want to make sure that they are protected. So using the rhetoric of, you know, it's not just, it's not just polite, it's not just responsible to wear a mask, it's patriotic. That is the type of language that is going to appeal to his supporters.
1: Yeah. And he knows, you know, he knows his supporters, right? If there's anything that he is in tune with, it is, it tends to be like his, his voting block. And so, you know, we've been pushing this whole time for him to leverage the influence that he has, leverage the um, surprising amount of support and followership that he has among you know his certain group of people to get them to do the right thing and even though it's been four months since his CDC uh, first recommended that everybody wear masks and at which point he said with the masks it's going to be a really voluntary thing you can do it, you don't have to do it I'm choosing not to do it but some people may <laughs> want to do it and that's okay <laughs> But now, finally, he's getting to the point where he's saying that it's actually a good thing. He said, quote, we're asking everybody that when you are not able to socially distance, wear a mask, get a mask. Whether you like a mask or not, they have an impact, they have an effect, and we need everything we can get. I will use it gladly. Anything that potentially can help is a good thing. Like, the difference in those two statements is amazing. And, like, the, that, that last statement almost sounds like the words of a leader trying yeah. to help a nation. Yeah. It's, it's so pretty easy you know not write them. Yeah, exactly. Someone <laughs> else, someone else <laughs> tweeted those. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but, so only four months too late, but better late yeah. than never.
0: So all of the all of the same caveats still apply in the situation. You know, mm-hmm. the damage that has already been done as a result of inaction has already been done, which that in and of itself should be disqualifying for Trump to become reelected. Yeah. Um, there is the caveat that he is definitely still trying to deflect blame from China. There's the caveat that he is definitely been against this from the beginning and now he's kind of pretending oh no i was never against it you know it's yeah. totally totally always for wearing a mask you know i think yeah. i look cool in masks um all of those caveats still exist but we do want to make sure that we don't punish the dog that comes home mm-hmm. and this is a positive approach and if he can get more people to wear masks especially his supporters good that's a good yeah. thing
1: yeah Yeah, and just to put some numbers behind that, I mean, maybe it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, because we, it's, this timing is a bit suspicious, like, he was pretty much not concerned about coronavirus stuff until it started hitting more rural states um, and more red states, Um, so as, as cases in, in, in those more traditionally Republican case, uh, states have spiked, and the um, popularity of Republicans and Republican leadership has declined, um, it seems like that may be an inciting factor for, for this change in rhetoric. But whether, you know, whichever way that coin lands, we know that Republicans are starting to take this more seriously than they did before. So a, a new study from Axios um, came out, And it found that 45% of Republicans now say that they're wearing masks all the time when they leave the house, which is up from 35% at the end of June. Um, And then 74% of Republicans now say that they're wearing a mask some or all of the time that they're outside the house. So like those, those two sections. So overall, like Republicans are starting to take this much more seriously, um, And overall in our society, 62% of people are saying that they wear a mask all the time when they're outside of the house, up from 53% two weeks ago, even while the numbers of Democrats that are doing that is flat. So we know that that increase is mostly coming from Republicans who are starting to take this more seriously and take more precautions when they're leaving their house. Um, And, you know, we know that this change in perspective or change in action, I should say, um, is is because, you know, more people are starting to take this seriously. And if, if it's like a partisan battle that gets people to, to get like leadership to actually lead the country in a good direction, that's fine. Um, because whatever, I guess, gets you there. Um, a recent Reuters poll found that 27% of respondents to the poll believe that a candidate's uh, plan to help the nation recover from the coronavirus is the most important factor in determining their vote, while 21% uh, prioritized plans to create jobs and boost the economy. So it seems like just a huge portion of the, the American voting public is starting to indicate that they, one, think the virus is dangerous, two, they want to protect themselves and others from the virus, and three, that's gonna influence their voting decisions come November.
0: And all of that is colossally important. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an important topic. It's, it's important that we continue to talk about it and that we continue to take it seriously. Uh, we flattened the curve for a little bit and then mm-hmm. we got lazy and it's been shooting back up. And there are lots of countries in the world that were able to get a handle on the coronavirus. And they're starting to reopen more things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm tired of quarantining. We're all tired of that. I'm tired of working online. I'm tired of, you know, wearing a mask. I hate wearing a mask. I absolutely hate it. I, you know, I'm on the autism spectrum. Like, that does not feel good on my face. Mm -hmm. You know, I am really looking forward to being able to go out in public again and not have to wear a mask and actually, like, see more than, you know, two people. I'm a huge... I'm a huge extrovert. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This, like... This has been great for my wife, who's, you know, an introvert. Uh, I mean, it's not... hasn't been great for her. Like, obviously, there's still a lot of struggles. But I think that, for me, I really... Like, my energy comes from interacting with people. And that just hasn't... That just hasn't been there. So we want... This to wrap up and to the extent that any action that the Trump administration takes is making it at least more viable, Mm -hmm. then that's a good thing. Now, there's still a lot to criticize. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is reiterating threats about uh, the reopening of schools where he's saying that he's going to withhold funding from uh, people that. From from, uh, localities that don't reopen schools. And he also threatens to take that money and basically give it to to private schools and religious schools and charter schools and and uh, homeschooling. Yeah. So
1: so we are supportive like this is probably the most positive that we've ever been about Trump on this show, because. You know, even though his messaging is still mixed, it's moving in the right direction. And it seems to be having an impact on the behavior of his base to to um, move things in a direction that will make our country better and make us safer and help shut down this disease, which is which is a good thing. On another note of good news, um, we actually have some pretty exciting progress on the vaccine front. Um, So at this point, the U.S. government has invested over $3 billion in trying to create a coronavirus vaccine, which is, you know, a hefty sum of money. You know, it's it's nothing compared to what we spend on, you know, aircraft carriers, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely a big investment. And there are currently six major U.S. pharmaceutical companies that are making progress and receiving these funds um, in order to create a vaccine. And I just wanted to quickly walk through just Three companies and what they're doing, um, who are the furthest along and getting the most money from the U.S. government, and those country companies are um, AstraZeneca, Johnson and Johnson, and Moderna. So, uh, AstraZeneca is is um, receiving about 1.2 billion dollars. So, you know, almost half of the total U.S. government funding, Um, and they are um, partnering with. Oxford University. And they're actually going to be moving soon into phase three. So large scale human clinical trials um, in England, and then potentially moving in phase three in the US in August. Um, And, you know, phase three, because you're dealing with 10s of 1000s of of people in these trials, um, is one of the last phases before getting towards a vaccine that is approved. Um, now one potential drawback is that this particular vaccine uses a a delivery mechanism so that's the technique that the actual vaccine uses in order to cause your body to build up an effective immunoresponse to the virus Um, now this particular delivery vehicle mechanism has been studied in clinical trials but has actually never been approved um, and put on the market so you know they're moving into phase three clinical testing. They've, they've, they're well-funded, so potentially a good thing, but still some question marks about, about the overall vehicle. Um, Johnson & Johnson is actually using the same delivery method, um, and they've received $456 million so far, and they're also expected to move into phase three clinical trials in September, um, with obviously a slightly different formulation of the vaccine. And then Moderna um, is expected to move into phase three In July with a study of over 30,000 participants and so they've received about four hundred and thirty million dollars from the government and um, they're actually pioneering a whole a whole new kind of vaccine delivery mechanism that has been tried somewhat um, in some clinical trials but again has not ever been approved for use on the open market so fingers crossed We've made tremendous progress really fast. We've invested a lot of money. I hope that at least one of these clinical trials, um, you know, really gets off the ground. If, if they did, you know, we could potentially see a vaccine in, you know, that really aggressive timeline of like a year and a half or so that, that we were originally trying to, to aim for. So pretty exciting stuff on that front.
0: Yeah, no, um, one thing that I wanted to say... Real quick about the whole vaccine thing. I just want to speak to some of our anti-vaxxers in the audience, because I know we probably have several of them. I don't know. They might have all fled from us by this (laughs) point. (laughs) Hey, y'all. I know that you and I haven't necessarily gotten along in the past. I mean, if you watch my YouTube channel, you know, I've, I've said some things about you how you scorn the autism community, you know, how you're so intellectually bankrupt that even presenting facts with you just reinforces your own preconceived notions about your correctness. But hey, just this once, just this once, just don't, please, just don't. This has been an entire global pandemic that has shut down the world economy has created basically a depression in the entire country, and if y'all fuck with herd immunity, I'm gonna be pissed. <laughs> like if we if we're able to get a vaccine that uh, does reinforce herd immunity, and there are still concerns that I've heard from uh, several experts about how coronaviruses do mutate very quickly. So the question as to whether or not a vaccine will be effective permanently is still up in the air, but it at least can create a sense of herd immunity and prevent it from spreading. And if we prevent it from spreading, then we end this. So please anti-vaxxers. I know that you probably hate me. And to be honest, this message is probably not that persuasive. I've definitely, (laughs) I've definitely been more persuasive in the past, but I'm begging you. Just this once, just this once, just don't.
1: So if you are not an anti-vaxxer and you think that, you know, what are these guys talking about? There aren't that many anti-vaxxers and probably no one listens to their show. Well, just, just a quick fact. 45% of Americans say that vaccines do not cause autism in children, which means that 55% think that it either does cause autism in children or they're not sure.
0: Yeah. So let me just say vaccines did not create autistics. (laughs) However, autistics probably created vaccines. (laughs) (laughs)
1: So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good?
0: Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good because I got a long list of ex-lovers, and they will tell you that I'm insane. But I got a blank space, baby. And I would write your name, but I don't remember it. Mm. So I'm going to write a mm-hmm. tip instead. That's, that's a good idea.
1: And ultimately because Taylor Swift and Tips for Good make the world... A little bit of a better place.
0: Yeah, exactly. That too. That too. I, I, you know, that had just come into my mind as soon as I finished mm-hmm. saying what I was saying. So, mm-hmm. so now, like, now, now I feel kind of silly that that I didn't bring that up as a secondary yeah. benefit.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look <laughs> silly. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, what is our tip for good this week? Well, Michael, our tip for good this week is to text. A friend that you deeply admire, but you're not sure that you've ever fully expressed what you admire about them. Mm. So this came about because, uh, actually, after Michael and I finished recording last week, the online progressive community uh, lost a, a hero, basically. Um, uh, Michael Brooks... Was a political commentator. Uh, he was a co-host of the Majority Report with Sam Cedar, and he also had his own YouTube channel. And he died of sudden medical complications. And it really did send a lot of shockwaves to a lot of progressive commentators and a lot of people on, you know, the the progressive web. And I've been seeing a lot of. Memoriams of him this week that talk about just how much people admired him not, not just because he had some really important perspectives and he was really good at framing them and he was also really good at you know just talking to you but also because you know personally they knew him and they thought he was a really just interesting person a really interesting guy and they felt like there was a lot that they couldn't tell him anymore
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I I I didn't know him personally. We are definitely not that big. Um but I definitely did admire his commentary. Mm-hmm. Um and I admired his humor. And it really did start getting me thinking. I have friends, I have people that I know that I really admire and anything can happen and what if they you know, what if they didn't know that? So I actually texted Michael the other day just letting him know, "Hey man, I just want to let you know, I really enjoy doing the pod with you. I really admire you. I think that you really do a good job of making people think. Even if people agree with you, you don't let them get away with that. You, like, you go the extra mile and make sure that they know why. And I think that it's important that sometimes we take a second, we think about the people in our life, and we think, do they know how we feel? Do they know what we admire about them? So that's the tip. Just reach out to someone and just just honor them, you know?
1: And that's tips for good. So for our next segment, we wanted to nerd out a little bit on a rhetorical uh, model of persuasive speech Called the Elaboration Likelihood Model, and you know because I am just a random Joe Schmo on the street when it comes to <laughs> something like this, I'm going to toss it over to Nathan, who uh, has a master's degree in this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, thank you, Michael. Um, th- thanks for the thanks for the introduction. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, yeah, so one we'll of like the edit things it in some
1: applause there, like
0: oh, welcome <laughs> to the stage, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so one of the things that we do in, uh, the rhetorical field of academia is a thing called rhetorical criticism. Now, rhetorical criticism is not just like, you know, the colloquial sense of criticism, meaning that you're, um, applying negative critiques to something. It's where you take an artifact and you apply a model of analysis to it. So I want to do a little rhetorical criticism slash rhetorical analysis of Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And the model that we're going to use is called the elaboration likelihood model. So I'm going to lay out what the model is, and then we're going to apply it to both of the campaign strategies of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and then kind of discuss what that means, what it means for the campaign as a whole. So, the elaboration likelihood model of persuasion lays out two specific ways of processing information. So it's about the way that your audience processes a persuasive message. And the two primary ways that it lays out are central processing and peripheral processing. So central processing is critically analyzing a message, you know, critically thinking about it, thinking about what you feel about it, why you feel that way, and what you intend to do as a result of it. And there is an advantage and a disadvantage to your audience centrally processing your message, and it largely depends on how persuasive you are. So if you are super persuasive and your audience decides that they agree with you after critically analyzing your message, then they're more likely to take steps to ensure that whatever your persuasive message is, that solutions presented are implemented. So
1: that's kind of like when you get to the point where you have convinced someone fully, like deeply all the way into their rational mind that you're right, they're probably gonna be more persuaded to actually act on those kinds of things, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. So they might, um, they might be more likely to go to rallies or contact congressional representatives, or, um, you know, or even start go a pro- podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> start a podcast. You know, um. But on the other side of it, because central processing requires a critical analysis, if they critically analyze your message and determine that they don't agree with you then they're more likely to actively fight against you. They're more likely to have maybe not necessarily animosity towards you, but definitely passion against what you're arguing. So the best form of persuasion, according to the elaboration likelihood model is getting your audience to essentially process a message that you have convinced them on. The other side of it is peripheral processing. So, as the name seems to suggest, peripherally processing is when you, you do listen to a message, you know, you're aware of it, but you're not really thinking that critically about it. You know Maybe you're not being exposed to all aspects of the message, or maybe they just haven't convinced you that it's a particularly important message. But at the end of the day, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, is not as important because if you agree with it then you might show peripheral support it might even influence you know like a vote potentially it might come to mind or it might even be a focus on something that is superficial
1: Mm -hmm.
0: however they're not going to take a lot of steps in order to demonstrate their agreement yeah but on the other side of it if they disagree with your message then they're also less likely to take actions against what you're doing. They're less likely to actively fight against you because to them, what you're saying doesn't feel particularly important one way or the other.
1: Yeah, and partially, like you might wonder like, well, shouldn't we all just be walking throughout the world receiving messages via our central processing so that we can critically evaluate everything around us? But that takes a lot of mental energy and focus. And the reality is that the human brain makes millions of calculations every moment about things around them all the time, you know, like, and we're very good at making calculations about particular things. Um, like you can meet someone and within seconds of knowing them determine whether you like them or not based on a lot of availability heuristics, which are processed via peripheral processing system. So like, and so if someone stands up in front of you and, moves and speaks in a way or, and is dressed in a way that lends them credibility, those would be things processed via a peripheral yeah. uh, system, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, another, another example that I would give, uh, this, is, this is something that I talk about in my class, so I'm used to giving examples. Uh, one example that I give, which isn't even necessarily about persuasion, it's more about your approach to it. So I really enjoy action movies. Um, I really enjoy bad action movies. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy watching Sylvester Stallone movies, and I've never seen a Sylvester Stallone movie that was objectively a good movie. <laughs> but I've also never seen a Sylvester Stallone movie that I was bored while watching. Mm-hmm. So for me, I peripherally process most action movies that I watch because I'm looking at a lot of superficial aspects of it. I'm like... It'd go boom, yeah. you know, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's fun. You know, I'm not critically analyzing it. I'm not thinking, you know, wow, look at the cinematography or look at look at Sylvester Stallone's superior acting style. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not thinking that. No, <laughs> yeah, no one is thinking <laughs> that ever. <laughs> um, but I'm still enjoying myself. Yeah. I'm not really thinking. And sometimes it is fun to just not think for a second.
1: Yeah. And while reading about this particular um, method of an analysis of persuasion and, and really of cognitive processing, what jumped out to me was that point that it is that, that kind of the role that exhaustion and overstimulation can play in this, especially as it relates to politics. So, you know, there's a reason why sometimes you're in the mood to watch an action movie, which is fun and enjoyable. And, you, and your brain processes it in a very peripheral way. It does not elaborate on it, it doesn't double click or dig deeper or think very deeply about it. And yet other times, when you have the mental energy to spend, you wanna watch a drama, which takes a lot of engagement, critical analysis, and, and yeah. is processed via a central processing system. So yeah. when you're thinking about political communication and strategies of political persuasion, Taking into account how exhausted your audience is with your message and messages of politics in general, especially during the time of coronavirus, when, you know, we are overstimulated to the nth degree with news about the world around us, that can be a huge, that could play a huge part in determining the effectiveness of the communication strategies of Biden and, and Trump.
0: Yeah, which brings us to, you know, the application of our communication model into the artifact, which is the campaign strategies of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So Michael brought up an essential a point right there. So one of the things that a lot of people on the left have been thinking during this entire time, during the last four years, is I'm tired. You know, I'm tired of constantly thinking about politics, constantly worrying about what's happening in the White House. And that's because... Everybody, Almost everybody is centrally processing Donald Trump. Now, what that means is that his supporters are avid supporters. You know, they're vehement supporters. They're excited supporters. And that actually is demonstrated in the polls. There is an Associated Press poll that came out recently that actually showed that the difference in excitement between Trump supporters and Biden supporters was um, 42% for Trump and 31% for Biden. Mm. And that is, that's a huge gap. That is an 11% gap. So people are not really that passionate about voting for Joe Biden, but people that are voting for Donald Trump are super passionate about voting for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And it's because they're centrally processing his message. And if they're centrally processing it and they decide that they agree with him, then, that is extremely powerful for his campaign. That is extremely beneficial for his campaign. But the problem with him right now is the fact that most people are centrally processing it, and they don't like the conclusions they're coming up with. Mm-hmm. Like they're looking at the fact that hundreds of th- that over a hundred thousand people have died so far of COVID. They're looking at the fact that. Um, We don't have a UBI right now, and we're heading towards a major issue with foreclosures and uh, evictions because people don't have the money to pay rent. And as soon as rent freezes are lifted, a lot of people are screwed. They're looking at the fact that from the very beginning he wasn't taking this virus seriously and that has exacerbated the problem throughout the United States. And even though we did give him a little bit of credit today for shifting Mm -hmm. his rhetoric, that doesn't change the damage that has been done. And most people are seeing that and they're vehemently against that. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that people that are against Donald Trump are really against Donald Trump. So what does that mean for Biden? Well, people are peripherally processing him. And that's kind of been his campaign strategy. I mean... And note that
1: that wouldn't be a winning campaign strategy normally against an incumbent without the kind of craziness that has happened and probably without the incumbent being Donald Trump who who shoots himself in the foot enough (laughs) that when you think about what he's doing you reject it but yeah. like but norm, like traditionally you all of the you know awareness that you have of the incumbent allows you to you know think about them in a generally positive way or a neutral way and not have to like and not have to process new messages so because you don't have to get to know this candidate at all you may be cognitively biased towards just favoring them from out of yeah. just cognitive laziness.
0: Yeah. Well, again, it's it's a comparative level of alternatives. I mean, look at, <laughs> look at Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you see him constantly imploding on himself. And, you know, there's Biden sitting in his basement. And what I think is kind of funny is when Donald Trump criticizes Joe Biden for just, like, hiding in his basement, it's like, yes, he's doing that. But I would, I mean, I think there should be some recalibration there where you look at it and say, well, yeah... He's hiding in his basement. He's doing nothing. He's not campaigning. He, he's hardly campaigning. Every now and then, he'll come out of his basement to be like, things would be so much better if they weren't so bad. <laughs> Which
1: is like, that could be <laughs> the Biden slogan. I think that's... Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, that should be the Biden slogan, you know? Yeah. Because that that's all you need right now. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, and, and the thing is, Even with the fact that we're not seeing Biden, he's still kicking your ass, Donald.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And unless Biden goes and does something that makes people wake up and pay attention to him more critically and and cause them to try to like, you know, have to not just rely on whatever their preconceived notion is of him being a better alternative to Trump and, like, more centrally process any negative things they have, a, they consider about him, then, you know, this is a pretty smooth sailing path, at least, you know, as far as, like, the ease of, of implying that Biden is a better alternative to Trump.
0: Yeah. And, and oftentimes when Biden does talk, you know, he also kind of puts his foot in his mouth. I mean, yeah. recently he was criticized for saying that Donald Trump was the first racist president.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I saw that.
0: It's like, uh,
1: um, what, what about what the Wilson other 44? <laughs>
0: and, um, you know, so did Mr. I Intern Japanese FDR. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. did, uh, Trail of Tears Andrew Jackson and the, what is it, like 14, 15 presidents that have owned slaves. Yeah. I think it's uh, safe
1: to say it's pretty much everything everyone except Obama. Sorry, Bill. Sorry like uh I, I, Jimmy I Carter. mean Jimmy Carter. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Jimmy Carter. Yep. But like but like law and order Reagan, um I should say crime and punishment Reagan.
0: Uh <laughs> Like even even Lyndon B Johnson, the guy that signed the Civil Rights Act was at, he used to be he, he was actually pro-segregation mm-hmm. when he got elected, originally got elected to the Senate. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe you could make an argument for Kennedy, but I mean, I racism used to be just the default position.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: In the United States. And, you know, it wasn't really, it wasn't really until the 60s that it got to the point where, like, a majority of people acknowledged that racism was a bad thing. hmm I mean, obviously, you still have a lot of racism today, but, you know, at least people consider racism to be a negative thing. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, back in the day, racism was just a fact about the world and a fact about society, and it would be silly for someone to try to ignore it and make social policies that, that didn't respect it. Yeah. You know?
0: So... So we did get a little off topic here, yes, but, it, yeah, yeah. It is to, <laughs> but it is to make the point that he came out and we're centrally processing his message and we're like, okay, that was, that was stupid. That, was, dude. A bad like, one. Yeah, bad that was a bad one. That was a bad one. So basically what we're arguing, well, I don't even necessarily think we're arguing for something. Mm-hmm. We're, just, we're just laying out the fact that his current strategy of have people peripherally process, have pe- when people go to the voting booth, Just respect the fact that they're not voting for you. They're voting against Donald Trump.
1: Yes, exactly. Allow
0: that to be your campaign strategy. Yeah. And honestly, you're probably going to win.
1: Yeah. I mean, think about the thought process, even of a swing voter, sitting, like standing in the booth. What are they going, what's going to make up their mind when they're about to mark the ballot? It's going to be the thoughts that they have, the emotions that they have, and the images that come to mind when they think about each candidate. And if you think, and if they think about Trump and they see someone crazy and, you know, like racist and mean, and then they think about Biden and they don't really think of much of anything at all, you have a built-in advantage because they don't like the guy that's ugly and mean and frustrating. (laughs) Yeah, make it easy, Biden. Make it easy for people to vote against Trump.
0: And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, ass hat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our ass hat this week? Well, Michael, our ass hat this week is Florida Representative Ted Yoho, which probably comes as a surprise to nobody who's been paying attention this week. <laughs> yeah,
1: seriously. <laughs> yeah, he he um is <laughs> pretty he was a pretty obvious ass hat this week. Yeah. So, last week Um, Mr. Yoho is walking with another Republican representative um, out of uh, Congress from casting a vote as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was walking in, and apparently he had some pretty mean things to say slash, you know, sexist slash total pig uh, (laughs) things to say to Representative (laughs) Ocasio-Cortez.
0: Yeah, so first off uh, a little bit of background, uh, AOC got some criticism for speaking something that is basically just a duh position in the academic community, but apparently some politicians are still dumb enough to not realize it, where she was talking about how, uh, a lot of the increase in crime in New York is likely a result of economic straits. Uh, We have talked about several times on the podcast how poverty increases crime. Now, again, to be clear, and AOC even clarified this, we're not arguing and she was not arguing that this applies in every single situation. And we're also not saying that if you're you're hungry or impoverished, that gives you an excuse to go murder people or to go, you know, ruin lives or anything like that however uh according to the bureau of justice statistics people in poor households that are at or below the federal poverty line are more experienced more than double the rate of violent victimization of crime as people in high uh income ho- households so it's just it's a verifiable fact that yeah crime increases with economic straits it's it's a fact and ultimately you can hold simultaneously the positions that
1: crime is bad and that we want people not to do crime and generally in society we have to punish people that do crimes and yet also believe that there are better ways to address crime and solving the fundamental inequalities and uh, desperation in our society is going to do a better job addressing crime than just throwing people into prison. You can believe all of those things at the same time.
0: Yeah. So anyways, he apparently took issue with this mm-hmm. and he accosted AOC. He accosted Acasio Cortez um, by first saying, do you really believe people are shooting and killing each other because they're hungry? You know, you're unbelievable. You're disgusting. He said, well, wa- wagging his finger at her. Which is always a weird thing that people do. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know, I don't know why people do that. Like,
1: now we should say that <clears throat> we don't have recording of this interaction, yeah. but so this a lot of these comments are according to AOC, um, yeah. but with with confirmation from a Hill reporter.
0: Yeah, there was a Hill reporter nearby that did overhear aspects of this conversation, including one of the most jarring parts of this, where apparently. When she came out again after a vote, he called her, quote, a fucking bitch.
1: Which is disgusting and astounding. Yeah. And and remember, guys, we are supposed to be able to expect more from our representatives than we expect from some drunk idiot in the corner of a gross bar. Right? Yeah. Like... <laughs> That's the kind of language and interaction that you might expect, as horrible as, as it is, in in the the worst dregs of our society. And then here yeah. it is, standing on the Capitol steps.
0: Yeah, and interestingly enough, AOC even pointed that out. Mm-hmm. Like she was addressing. Um, well, first off, Yoho made this non-apology yeah. where he denied that he ever that he ever called her that. Uh, but again, we do have a Hill reporter that was apparently standing nearby mm-hmm. that had overheard it. And, you know, it, it's, it's a reporter. I would say that's a relatively independent party. Um, so I'm very inclined to believe that account of this. Um, so he denied that he said that he said, if my statement was misconstrued that way, I apologize that, you my, took it that way. My basically. two word
1: statement saying <laughs> yeah. only that you are a particular noun.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh. Um and then and then he, he ended it with this weird thing where he said, I will not apologize for loving my God and my country and it's like no one what what? No one's that's, Yeah. That's no one's asking an, you to do that. Yeah, no one's asking you to do that. You know, love your God, love your love your country, like that's that's great. You know? You're all too We're scared asking... to post this picture <laughs> of an American flag. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, but he also, he also basically tried to point out the fact that, um, that because he has a wife and a daughter, that that means that he's somehow like a better person. He's like, oh, I would never say that because I have a wife and a daughter. And then AOC kind of hit back by basically saying, seriously, you you think that makes you a good person? Mm -hmm. Like, and this, this whole interaction just really does demonstrate um, what the type of shit that women have to deal with, like yeah. one of the things that I admired, I, I, I watched, I watched the speech that she gave kind of, um, in response to this. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she, that she talked about was it wasn't that jarring to me because I've heard that type of language as you know, when I was a waitress, when I've had to throw people out for using that type of language or even just in the street, in the subway, Mm-hmm. But that's the problem, the fact that I'm like I'm used to hearing that and it's not jarring. Yeah. Um so and, and I think there is definitely an argument to be made that if she were not a she, mm-hmm. then that conversation probably would have gone differently.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And even if it even if it didn't, we we certainly know that there would not be the history of experiences like this in the recipient's life that this is emblematic of. Right? Like I have never been called anything like that. And I yeah. I just don't have to worry about those experiences in my life as a male. Yeah. And so if someone did call me that, you know, tomorrow or the next day or whatever. I would hear it, it would be surprising, it would be frustrating, but it wouldn't be emblematic of experiences that I have had to deal with and put up with and overcome my whole life.
0: And also he's just wrong on the substance. I mean, first yeah. off, he's straw manning her position. She was not saying that um she's not trying to justify killing by you know, because people are hungry. And she specifically said, like, obviously that's not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a like, this is just a well known, verifiable fact among academics that apparently is not politically correct to say in Washington. So, at the end, we've spent a lot of time talking about this, yeah, but yeah. at the end of the day, congratulations, Ted Yoho, for being our ass hat of, of the week. week. And now we are going to do something for fun, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, we're pretty far from the election at this point, and mm-hmm. a lot of things can change. Oh, yeah. You know, there's there's often October surprises. There are a lot of ways that the election could go based on different happenings in the next few months. However, we're going to go ahead and say what our predictions are going to be for each of the states in the Electoral College, and we're also planning on sharing our maps uh, on our Facebook for you to take a look at them. And then after the election, you know, we'll relook at them and see what we were right about and, uh, you know, if we were wrong about anything. So, you ready for this? Yeah, let's do it. So the way I'm going to be basing this, uh, the way we're going to be doing this is um, we're I'm right now looking at the uh, 270 to win averages uh, of polling data. And right now it's listed in order of least competitive to most competitive. So I'm going to start with, again, this is based purely on polling. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, least competitive and we're just going to get through the states that are kind of, that are obviously going to go one way that are def- mm. that are, uh, foregone conclusions basically. So unsurprisingly, the least competitive race is West Virginia. You know, that that's going to go to Donald Trump. Um, mm. Massachusetts, obviously going to go to Biden. Uh, Kentucky is going to go to Trump. Uh, New York is going to go to Biden. California is going to go to Biden. Uh, Maryland is going to go to Biden New Jersey's going to go to Biden. Connecticut's going to go to Biden. Washington's going to go to Biden. Oklahoma's going to go to Trump. Yep. Colorado. So Colorado is sometimes characterized as more of a swing state. Uh, and it is often close, but I mean, obviously based, based on the polling here, it is considered a little bit less competitive. Mm-hmm. Biden has a very significant um, Lead, advantage. Yeah. In yeah. fact, it's, like on average uh, net 17. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's pretty insane. Yeah. According to Uh, the
1: economist, he has an 85 to 99% chance of winning Colorado. Yeah.
0: So I, I think we've taken a second address that address that it's been a swing state in the past, but I, I don't think there's any chance that it's not going to go to Biden. Mm -hmm. Um, North Dakota, definitely going to Trump. Yeah. Delaware, obviously going to Biden. Um, Alabama, (laughs) definitely going to trump new mexico sometimes again this has been characterized as a little bit more competitive in the past um and you could probably characterize it as uh maybe not safe but likely but again at the end of the day uh new mexico does usually go for the democrats um and i i I don't really foresee this uh going to I don't foresee it going to, to Biden. It's it's going, or to, to, to Trump. It's definitely going to Biden. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Indiana, uh, it broke for Barack Obama in 2008, went back to uh, Mitt Romney in 2012, and it's been a solid Republican stronghold since then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mike Pence is the vice president, which is definitely going to, you know, he's the former governor of Indiana, so that's definitely going to have some impact. I think there's no doubt that it's going to go to Trump. Yeah. Um Kansas going to Trump. Yep. Yeah,
1: the whole um, middle section
0: there, <laughs> straight north <yeah>. to south. <laughs> yeah. Uh Virginia, again, it's been competitive in the past. Yeah. Um but it's been trending bluer and bluer and bluer. I you know, Hillary Clinton did win it, not by a lot, but um but still a uh, still a margin, mm-hmm. and it's only gotten bluer. Yeah, so yeah I think
1: like, like huge turnout for primary for the Democrats. Yeah, so.
0: yeah. So Virginia, Virginia is going to Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, Maine at large is going to Biden. Um, although there is definitely, uh, I, I would say, is definitely going to Biden. It might be a little bit more competitive, but I, at the mm-hmm. end of the day, it's going to Biden. I think there is a argument that Maine's second district is likely going to go for, could go for Trump. Uh, or biden um i'm gonna go ahead and classify it as going to trump for now Mm, for safety Uh, well not necessarily for safety because like at the end of the day i wouldn't be too surprised if it went for biden but it's it's one electoral vote at this point which Mm. i mean could make a, a difference but i i think that it's i think it's probably fair to i'm gonna go ahead and make the prediction that that's gonna go to trump yeah um minnesota so minnesota was a little bit closer in 2016 but it did ultimately go to hillary clinton and i think that it's you know it's probably going to stay in that category Mm -hmm. i think it's i'm not too worried about my prediction and saying it's probably going to break for biden yeah uh montana we might have a potentially competitive uh senate race here but uh on a presidential level it's going to Trump. Mm-hmm. It's just going to go to Trump. Uh, Mississippi, closer margin than I've ever seen from Mississippi as far as polling is concerned. And the fact that Trump has 50% to 41% with 9% undecided according to average polling from Mississippi does kind of say something about his overall performance. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's going to go to Trump. Yeah. Uh, Tennessee, it's going to Trump. Florida. Florida. Let's talk about Florida yeah, for a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cuz this is one that I on my map I do not have I do not have classified yet and I'm going to go ahead and say I'm really not confident about my prediction with Florida. Mm-hmm. So the polling, the average polling does sh- uh, on uh, 270 to win shows Biden ahead with 51% and Trump at 43%. And there's some arguments to be made for biden winning this Mm -hmm. so the first argument is the fact that right now florida is considered the epicenter of the virus they've been heavily hit by the virus absolutely um and they have a republican governor that whose approval rating has been tanking yeah uh, who's a very pro-trump republican uh, Ron DeSantis. and you know if it were two weeks ago i would have said donald trump definitely donald trump Mm -hmm. um and I still think that there is a strong possibility that he can eke out a win. But at the end of the day, I mean, based on what's happening with coronavirus, yeah. uh, based on the fact that felons can now uh, formerly convicted felons there can now vote. So that's another, yeah. uh, I think it was like 200,000 people.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a surprisingly large portion of their potential voter community. And celebrities are actually getting out there to like help. Um, pay off court debts for felons so that they are able to vote um, and to put the the story against DeSantis in um, to perspective so in mid May his disapproval rating was in like the high 30s and as of last week it's now at 58%. So Ooh. like the impact Ouch. on yeah on approval for Republicans in that area has tanked due to the yeah.
0: coronavirus. So I'm gonna go ahead and classify it as a Biden state. I'm I'm ready to um, call it. <laughs> you're you're ready to call it? I'm ready
1: to call it. No problem. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, this is the one that I'm least confident about. Mm-hmm. I would like to I would like to say. I if anybody like if any prediction that I make today is gonna be wrong, um I think that one's the most likely to be wrong. But based on where we are right now, um, ultimately, if I, you know, if you put a gun to my head and say, who's it going to be, I'd, I'd say it's probably going to be Biden. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania broke for Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, it was one of the three states that really handed him the presidency. Uh, 270 to win actually classifies it as a lean Democrat. It's not even considered a toss-up state. Hmm. It's, it's lean um, Democrat. In fact, if you look at the electoral map, Uh, based on the lean Democrat, the likely Democrat, and the safe, um, Biden already won. Yeah. Biden's already won, according to that. Yep. Um, Now, anything can happen, but I do think that ultimately, uh, based on the way trends have been so far, the fact that... I I would argue that 2016 was really a... It was an outlier. Yeah, a bit of a a fluke year. Yeah, so... Pennsylvania is usually a democratic state and I think it's going to continue to be uh, a democratic state. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would, I would, I would classify Pennsylvania as, as Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. What do you think?
1: I'd say that I think that makes sense. I think that makes, I I freaking
0: hope it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Missouri, it's going for Trump. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't have much to say about it. It's, you know, it again. It's classified as more competitive because of some polling data that has showed Biden having some gain in it. But ultimately, mm-hmm. it's ultimately it's going to Trump. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, New Hampshire. So New Hampshire is always interesting. Yeah. You know, it's it's usually very close. But even even in the year where Hillary Clinton uh lost, she still won New Hampshire. It wasn't mm. by much, but she still ended up winning it. And then. I really think that, um, you know, based on Trump's approval rating in New Hampshire, uh, ultimately, I'd, I'm not, I'm pretty confident to go ahead and say that's going to be a Biden state. Mm-hmm.
1: No, yeah, I think that makes sense to me. I mean, it's like, to your point, it is, um, it can kind of go either way. It's a, it's a little bit of a toss up state historically, but also it's only four electoral votes. So, like, somewhat important, but not going to break the camel's back for sure.
0: Well, not necessarily. I mean, if it does end up being super close, like three electoral votes can, you know, yeah, three electoral mean, votes can be the difference. Yeah. Oh, sure, definitely. But you know, so I, so pick up everything you can. Yeah, of course, of course. Um. Michigan. So, Michigan also went to Trump in two thousand sixteen. His approval rating since has tanked. Mm. In that. In that whole general reason the 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 rust belt as a whole his approval rating is tanked and in large part due to uh, a lot of his china trade policies um the the tariffs which has been devastating to farmers in the area i think again i think that was another fluke um and it's it's very likely to go back to the democrats uh and i i i'm pretty i think i think um it's pretty safe to say that that's a biden state
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd say that like for a lot of the um, the Rust Belt type states, like um, the ones that went for Trump in twenty sixteen, were kind of making a bet that knowing that the status quo wasn't hadn't been great for them, um, that maybe this upset New Yorker guy was gonna was gonna start you know giving them stuff that they could that would actually benefit them. But I think ultimately he's just showed so to be so callous to like their interests. Um yeah. I can't imagine that they're like even if even if some of the states go that way, they're I can't imagine that they're particularly avid supporters of them, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh Arizona. This is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Arizona. I actually this is an interesting one, but I'm still going to go ahead and say that I'm I'm actually pretty confident about this classification. Uh I think it's going to Biden.
1: Oh, I'm, that's um, so interesting you say that. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing cuz it's kind of been trending that direction and getting some like um, you know, rallying from some pretty compelling yeah, de- moderate well, it's, democrats.
0: It's been trending that that direction. Um the, you know, the democrat there, the in the Senate, the democrat who's running the Senate, uh Kelly, he's doing really well in the polls. He's considered to be a favorite to win. Um, Joe Biden has been doing pretty well in the polls in Arizona and it's also becoming a more diverse state. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, yeah, I think that ultimately Arizona has been trending more blue. And I think that this is, I think this is going to be the election that ultimately, uh, gives it to the Democrats. I, I really do. Um, again,
1: uh, that would be a pretty exciting win with 11 electoral votes.
0: That would be a pretty exciting win. And again, I, I, You know, I definitely I will acknowledge that I do have a bias here. You know, I I don't want Trump to win, but that's just what it's looking like at this point, based on the data, based on past trends, based on current trends and all that. Mm -hmm. Um South Carolina. It's weird that South Carolina is considered like a little bit more competitive <laughs> than Arizona, according to the polling, uh, South Carolina is going to Trump. Yeah, like, I'd say that's right. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, don't get, don't get excited. It's going to Trump. Um, Nevada, uh, I would say, I would say again, a state that has been close in the past, but you know, based on the Senate race in 2018, Based on overall trends of diversity, it has a very large Latino population, Latinx yep. population. It's, I think it's, um, I think it's going to Biden. Yeah,
1: I'd say that's right, especially with their ability to, you know, mobilize some of their like union workforces and stuff that we saw with the, uh, with the pri- Democratic primary out there. I'd say that, yeah, with with the, it's been trending in that direction.
0: Yeah, Wisconsin. This is another interesting one. And this is one that, this is one that I'm also not completely sure about. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you know, again, w- what we were talking about earlier, a lot of the policies in the Rust Belt has gotten people, you know, very, um, like very contemptuous towards Donald Trump. And let's also think about why did Barack Obama choose Joe Biden? as his running mate in 2008 it's because he appealed to to white people the white working class yeah and that is a major voting block in wisconsin ultimately i think that you know based on that based on his overall appeal and based on the way trump's policies have been hurting farmers i would go ahead and classify wisconsin as as likely democrat
1: Mm. yeah i think that that makes total sense to me i agree
0: yeah Uh, Utah (laughs) it's going to Trump I mean (laughs) what's funny is Utah has a large amount of people that are undecided Mm -hmm. according to this according to you know the average Uh, like 15% of people are undecided and it's Trump up by 44 and Biden with 41% gotcha Um, but it's probably just because I I would argue that the heavy Mormon population of Utah has kind of historically been showing that they're not huge fans of trump Mm -hmm. but they hate democrats even more yeah so like uh they might have a low he might have a low approval rating in utah but ultimately they're not going to vote for biden they're going to vote for trump
1: yeah i mean so if if we've made any point again and again on this podcast about biden it's that you know he's not winning based on turnout or at least not for him so unless people are against trump they're probably not for biden
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, Georgia. So this is considered a little bit more competitive, and it's been pretty close in the polls. Some have even shown Joe Biden ahead. I'm going to go ahead and classify this as a Trump state. Really? Yeah i I don't think Biden has a I don't think Biden has a realistic shot. I mean, Stacey Abrams came close to claiming claiming the uh, governor's mansion, but I think that a combination of Voter suppression, and just it is still a fairly conservative state, uh, is ultimately going to keep it in the Trump category. So I'd, I, 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 I would classify that as a Trump state.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm less I'm less sure about Georgia, partially because of Stacey Abrams and the fact that, you know, some of the voter suppression tactics are were priced into Stacey Abrams' loss of the governor's mansion there. So, like I. I you know, it's, it's all, whether people can get out to vote is definitely up in the air, especially with coronavirus and with like attempts to restrict mail-in voting and things like that. Um, but I'd say like, you know, their history of, of, um, kind of messing with the ballot box may mean that that's a kind of already priced into their, um, you know, slight trend in the blue direction. Um, so we'll see.
0: Yeah. So, so if you were going to classify it, would you classify it as a Trump state or a? Biden
1: I I'm undecided right now. I okay, can't. Okay. You're undecided. Too close.
0: All right. Um. So. All right. Well, let's let's move on to Iowa then. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know better <laughs> than about Iowa than than I ever could. Yeah. So. <laughs> I was going
0: to. I was going to Trump. Yeah, that wouldn't um, surprise <laughs> me. Like even with the Rust
1: Belt kind of theory there.
0: Even with the Rust Belt theory, uh. Trump Trump has been sinking in the polls. Um, And the senator, the person who's running for Senate, is actually doing very well against Joni Ernst, who's the current incumbent Republican. Hmm. Um, And I actually think there's a strong possibility that Joni Ernst is going to lose her seat, but I still think Trump's going to carry the state. Gotcha. Uh, I I remember um, when I lived there, there was a lot of excitement about the governor's race, which the Democrat was winning in almost every single poll. And it was classified that he was likely going to win. And then he ended up losing. I think uh, based on that, I think ultimately statewide races tend to tend to favor the Republican in Iowa. And I, I I don't have any hope that Biden's going to win it. I mean, it's, it's going to Trump.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, I, I was like a, uh, test tube for so many like questions about our, our, about the like political leanings of our country. Um, and like the representation of, of the Midwest
0: forgot to classify Nebraska three, uh, Nebraska three, I think is ultimately going to be going to the Democrat to, uh, Joe Biden. But I think Mm -hmm. that, um, that the rest of Nebraska is going for Donald Trump. Um, anyways, uh, Alaska, polls are a little bit closer but it's going to trump yeah i think that's i right. mean you know it's been trending blue in some ways but ultimately it's it's going to trump mm-hmm. um arkansas i don't even know why this is like considered this competitive arkansas is going to trump yeah like, <laughs> <laughs> i sorry but it's it, yeah yeah not much more to say North Carolina. This is an interesting state. Yes, very. I'm gonna say it's going to Biden. Um, yeah. Based on, like, based on the black population, mm-hmm. based on uh, how popular he is there, based on how unpopular Trump is currently. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, and, and you know, although Barack Obama did not win it in 2012, they did win it in in 2008, mm-hmm. and. You know, There's a lot of data in South Carolina to suggest that uh, it is trending in a more blue direction. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I would, I would classify that as as a Biden state. What about you?
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think, like, ultimately, if it were just a generic Republican against a generic Democrat, it might be closer. Um, but, like, given who the actual candidates are, um,
0: I think it, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, Ohio. As they often say, "So goes Ohio, so goes the presidency." But I don't think this is going to be that—that's going to be the case this time, because mm-hmm. I'm going to give Ohio to Trump.
1: You think so, man? I do be, think that'll so. be a bit of a hit.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I—I I think Ohio's going to Trump. It has been—it has been trending a lot more red. He won it fairly easily in two thousand, uh, in two thousand sixteen. Um. You know i i wish i had more exciting things and more in-depth analysis about this but ultimately it's just it's just been trending red and i i really don't think i think there's a good chance that if biden wins and is the incumbent mm-hmm. uh and he's running in the election in 2024 uh, mm-hmm. that they can probably win ohio back but i don't think he's gonna win at this time i think it's gonna go to trump
1: yeah I think that makes sense. And ultimately like the polling had put Trump like, you know, ahead in Ohio by a couple of points kind of until, and then opinion didn't like seem to shift until like deeper into the coronavirus. And so, you know, if he's able to be successful at all in his messaging and, you know, change in rhetoric around the coronavirus, it could totally swing that direction.
0: Yeah. Um, and finally, we have Texas, mm. which is considered, which is a very interesting state right now. Yeah. They're considered in a dead heap right now. There have been some polls that have shown Biden ahead in Texas, uh, a few that have shown him um, below Trump.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to go ahead and classify it as a Trump state, though. Really? I think that, I think it's going to be a democratic state in 2024 Mm. in fact i i'd be willing to bet that it goes blue in 2024 i don't think it's gonna i don't think it's gonna go blue this year though
1: gotcha that makes sense yeah to me like to me i think democrats are at such a structural disadvantage in texas considering um just the way that that partisan um that like voting power is skewed towards uh, geographic space and away from, you know, Democrats being focused in um, more urban areas. And like Texas is just like such a extreme example of that. I think like ultimately it's a, it's a really hard state to overcome. So I think that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So that is our map. So looking at the final map, um, my prediction is that Biden will win with uh, 334 electoral votes to Trump's uh, 204 electoral votes. Uh, again, the things that I'm, if I'm wrong about anything, uh, I am probably wrong about Florida uh, and North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a good chance that, um, that those are things I'm going to be wrong about. But even if we do give those to Donald Trump, Biden still wins, So ultimately, things are looking very good for Joe Biden. Now, anything can change. And, you know, it might be fun to do another one of these closer to the election. But as of right now, this is my prediction. So what was the what was the state that you weren't sure about? Was that North Carolina?
1: No, for me, it was Georgia.
0: Okay, Georgia. Yeah. So. So you have a gun to your head, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to pick one. (laughs) Who does it go to?
1: I think, I think, I mean, gun to my head, I think it probably goes to Trump. Um, yeah, I, I, I just don't think it's been, he's been hit nearly as hard in that area in, in recent months as some of the other States that have, that have decided to trend the kind of the other direction. So,
0: so that is our map. We will go ahead and, uh, post that on our Facebook along with the episode. So you can take a look. That's our prediction. Uh, It seems that we're in agreement on pretty much all the states, Mm -hmm. so we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah. And now it's time for our last and most lighthearted segment, um, our highlights. So, Nathan, what was your highlight this
0: week? My highlight this week was the end of it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) it was a hell week for me there was a lot of grading Uh, the informative speeches for my community college students were due and so that was uh, that was 40 speeches that I needed to watch and grade and that was a lot Um, along with outline papers and it was also my last week uh, for my university students so I had to grade all of their final assignments as well Mm. so it was it was a lot of stuff to get done, but when it was over, it definitely did feel very fulfilling. So that is my highlight, sounds, the end of the week. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's a pretty good one, definitely.
0: What about you, Michael? What's your highlight? For me, I mean,
1: uh, it was—I I had like a nice weekend. I didn't really get everything done that I was hoping to get done. Um, but yesterday, I went for a float in the river, which was really nice. <laughs> Just like sitting in... It's been so hot. So like getting into the water a little bit was really nice. So... And also went for a bike ride, which was quite refreshing. And the combination of going for like a 30-mile bike ride and then jumping into the water felt awesome. (laughs) Nice. And now thanks so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.